What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 499 with my guest, Brianne Davis. Holy shit, 499 episodes. You know what that means. One more and we're at 500. I had to do that math for you. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past trauma, sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, boy, I've had a month off. I don't even know if I, uh, if I said that right. Uh, but this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. I like to think of the therapists and the social workers and the other people out there on the front lines as the, the football team, and, and I'm a cheerleader just trying to, trying to entertain and, and inspire. Um, boy, I, it was a nice month off. I took the month of July off as I have the last couple of years. And while it sucked not really being able to travel anywhere, it, it was nice to take a break and recharge my battery, and I'm grateful that I was able to do that. So, um, yeah, lots of, lots of time to kind of ponder life and struggle and things that work and things that don't work. And one of the things that I always struggle with is when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I, most of the time, I don't know. And I, I'm afraid that I'm going to say I'm doing okay, but actually I'm not. Or say that I'm not doing great, but maybe it's a bad attitude. I'm so afraid of inaccurately describing how I'm doing. And I think that's one of the things I love about dogs is you don't have to try to explain your day to a dog. You you don't have to say, well, I slept till noon and then went back to bed at three. And I don't know, did I give myself permission or do I hate myself because I'm a lazy piece of shit? <laughs> For me, describing my day is like a five-minute version of a wedding. It just it can't go fast enough. And honestly, 
when I'm not feeling well, when I'm kind of depressed, the most honest thing I could say if somebody asked me how my day was is to say, I don't know. I moved from one gray cloud to the other to try to avoid conversations. I dreaded leaving the house and I ate with my fingers standing over the sink staring out the window. I mean, what do you what do you say as the as the other person when somebody shares that with you if you don't get what that is like? So I just say, I'm doing great. I can't remember if I had learned how to make key lime pie before I took the break, but holy shit, if you have never made it with with actual key limes, it is so amazing. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when you make something you didn't think that you could make well, and you sit and you eat it and you enjoy it, and it's just like, it's the best feeling. Except for the part of you that is like, you took way too big of a piece. And it's funny, the only time I don't feel that way about myself, and I, and I kind of realized this when I sat down one night and I was eating a huge piece of key lime pie and I was watching something that had to do with murder or serial killers, and I felt such a rush of comfort and dopamine and I was like, what is that about? Why Why is the combo of dessert and murder <laughs> feel so soothing? And I realized it's probably because the voice in my head that tells me I'm lazy and have no discipline for eating this pie is quiet because I'm watching people who murder. You know, it's <laughs> you're eating something with whipped cream versus stabbing somebody in the face. Uh, it's It's nice when that that brutal voice in our heads quiets down and just lets us be. I'm going to read an email that I got from a listener. And um, how did he want to be referred to? I don't know if he if he wrote that. Ah, Mr. Self-Destruct is how we wanted to be referred to. And I'm going to fast forward through uh, through some of this and kind of uh, summarize it. But he his girlfriend has experienced a litany of horrifying things in her life. Sexual abuse, traumatic deaths of uh, relatives, uh, one of them by suicide. Uh, she has a host of uh, mental illnesses that she's battling. And he asks me... Uh, when we get together and I, when we got together and I learned all this, I thought maybe I could help her, guide her to therapy or something, but I've had no success in doing so. Any suggestions? Well, it, it, and, and I wrote him back and I didn't say this because it just occurred to me to add this, but when you choose someone that says something about what it is that you're looking for, because a lot of people would have turned and run and, and there's no one, you know, I'm not placing any moral judgment on one versus the other. But when we choose somebody who clearly has a lot of chaos and a lot of issues in their life, it says something about about us. And I, and I wrote him back and I said, uh, that is a lot of shit for a human being to go through. And 
I wouldn't push her to therapy if she's not willing because the sad but true fact is some people are afraid of opening those lids that they have kept shut for so long. The important thing is for you to take care of yourself and make sure your needs are being met in the relationship. A lot of people stay in relationships hoping for the other person to change. And it gives them something to focus on so they don't have to think about their issues, which is a way of you keeping the lid on your stuff. And that is, in my opinion, kind of a classic codependency. So if things are lacking in your relationship, I suggest addressing them directly rather than trying to tell her the solution in the hopes that she is going to change and then your needs will be met. You know, let that be up to her if and when she's going to change. And look at someone's actions more than their words because promising to change is not the same thing as taking active steps to change. It says a lot about somebody's commitment to a relationship. If they take actions, if they hear you, that something's lacking, that, that you want intimacy and it's not there, that you want communication, you know, that their, their anger makes you uncomfortable or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself still kicking myself for, for forgetting to use slash mental when I signed up for better help. Um, Describing her ADD, she writes, following conversations feels like following the path of an M.C. Escher painting. Oh, do I love that one. Oh, do I love that one. Thank you for that. Uh, About her codependency. If I've known you for more than a day, I've fallen in love with you at least 10 minutes. For at least 10 minutes. Uh, about experiencing enmeshment with a parent. I'm supposed to be the mother to my mother until she decides I'm not doing it right. (laughs) Oh my God, those are so great. And then a snapshot uh, of her ADD or ADHD. She writes, I started out with a plan to braid my daughter's hair and somehow ended up making banana bread instead. (laughs) Oh my God, those are fantastic. Thank you for those. Uh, this is also from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself fairy of the waste and about her codependency. She writes, loving someone is like putting a knife in their hand and jumping towards them, hoping they don't hurt me. Oh, thank you. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself the greatest piece of shit and about his compulsive eating. This is a snapshot of it. He writes, after a long week, when you make it to Friday night, get home, change into comfy clothes, make the call, check the inventory. Then first stop is liquor store for a 12 pack of beer. Next stop, pick up the two medium pizzas, 12 wings, breadsticks, and all the sides of sauces. And you politely ask the guy behind the counter to not forget the dipping sauces. They'll yell at me if I forget them. Ha ha ha. And you go home alone and drink all that beer and eat both pizzas, all the wings, maybe half of the breadsticks. You're not a total slob, but use every sauce that was there. Why? Because you're alone and you can be in control of what you eat. It makes you happy, or so you think. Wow, that was profound. That was profound. Thank you for painting that picture and you know, just a, a a suggestion that if it, that if you do want to move towards 
a healthier life and more self-esteem, dealing with the 12-pack of beer might be a good place to start because when something numbs us out or reduces our inhibitions, it's really hard to make any kind of traction on the other issues when our inhibitions are down and our compulsive behavior is is up. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself OGs, and she writes, uh, first of all, I love you and your podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. I suffer from major depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Life hasn't been easy, but over the last year, I've been feeling better. Anyway, I got divorced from my husband three years ago. We'd been together since high school, and he was the only man I'd ever been with sexually. I met my current boyfriend about six months uh, and after fooling around a bit, I met my current I think she, she meant to say after about six months. And after fooling around a bit, I noticed he has a very small penis. My ex-husband was average in size, I guess. It's not like I'm a penis expert. I really couldn't care less about that sort of thing. And I really like this guy. He's wonderful. The first time we had sex, he wore a condom and everything felt great, exclamation point. He really is a great lover, and the penis size thing was not an issue at all. The problem came, no pun intended, when his condom slid off and decided to hide inside my vagina somewhere. We just couldn't find it, and I couldn't leave it in there, so off to the emergency room we went. The emergency room doctor who saw us happened to be my ex-father-in-law. That's right, Paul, my ex-father-in-law had to extract my new boyfriend's used condom from my vagina. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, can't make this shit up. One of our sponsors for today, as always, is BetterHelp.com Online Counseling. Uh, I've been doing it for about three years, and uh, I've worked through so many issues with uh, Donna, my, my therapist, and... Um, sometimes we're, we won't even do it weekly. You know, I'll check in every couple of weeks and it's so nice because she'll, she'll send me a message just checking in, asking me how I'm doing. It's really, it, it is so nice knowing that you have a counselor that, that really cares and is, um, super qualified to deal with my nuttiness. So if you're interested in check it out, uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental if you think of it. And then they'll, uh, you can fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor they feel is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is your thing, and you need to be over 18. If you're between 13 and 17, they'll forward you to teencounseling.com. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? 
What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself, my usernames are unimpressive and way too long. And he writes, a few summers ago, some friends and I went out to a busy bar on karaoke night to celebrate a friend's birthday. The night started out quite enjoyable. I rarely get to see them and everyone was having a good time. Very often, uh, if when suddenly surrounded by lots of people, it doesn't take me very long to rapidly get emerged in negative thoughts and I become absent and separated from everyone else. I remember feeling especially bad that night without really knowing why. I think I compare myself to my friends who I see as better, more interesting, and funny people. I often feel like they would all enjoy their time more if I hadn't showed up. I got to the point where my anguish was just too much and I left the bar and went walking around the nearby streets. I played this scenario in my head of how they would all react if I offed myself. One of the guys called me, wondering where I was, and I made my way back there as if nothing had happened. Moments later, the entire place was dancing and singing to whatever was playing, and a French girl came up to me and asked why I was so sad. It caught me off guard, and I pulled out of the typical I pulled out the typical excuse and said I was just tired and had a rough time at work. I turned away and tried to ignore her. After a while, she came back and placed her hands on my face and forced a smile on me and said those exact words. You look a lot better this way. Are you sure you're okay? Because you look like a manic depressive contemplating suicide. I told her not to worry about me and that I'm always this way. I was honestly very shaken by this and I still think about it often. How is it that someone who was only in the city visiting, who I'd never seen before, saw right through me when no one else does. I guess when you've been like this for too long, people close to you see it as normal you. I'm not sure what the real me feels like anymore. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry 
We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Well, Maybe listen, thanks people. for coming in. I'm here with my friend uh, Brianne Davis, who I've known for 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. And I'm here with Gracie, who's chewing a toy underneath the table. Um, Brianne, where do we, where do we start? Brianne and I met in a support group that we both still go to. Um, we've both struggled with intimacy issues. Yes. We both came from childhoods where there was not a whole lot of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to plug your book. You you got a, a book out and, and give me the exact title of it. I know it's very long. It's yeah. called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. I only read one chapter. Uh, Brianne sent me one chapter and I, and I think you were very hesitant. I was. Um, <laughs> because it's a bit graphic in there, but the, the nature of this show, I read shit that, you know, it was, it was not. Uh, too intense for me to read it. If anything, I felt like, uh, you know, a big brother reading his little sister's book where it was like, well, I've never pictured <laughs> these things before. This is a bit weird, but I, I like the honesty of it. It's so, you don't spare any details in what it's like being uh, a sex and, and love addict. And I think that's a really important thing, especially, I think, as a female, because people yeah. tend to think of men as the base, you know, the base gender. That yeah. that's. I think that's why, you know, I just, I, I've been in it 10 plus years. I have such great sobriety that I had this calling almost the last year to tell my story or some story of a woman that struggled with these issues because when you mention it either someone thinks it's hot and sexy and it's not hot and sexy not being able to connect with other human beings like or using them to fill a hole inside of you and i just had this calling and, and my husband he was like you need to write and i was like i'm not a writer i'm an actress I just, I have no desire to write. And he's like, please just do this sick, this, uh, three month program and just, just try it. And you don't have to tell a soul. A writing program. A writing program. Right. It was online. You don't have to tell a soul. I'm the only one that knows. We won't discuss it. You can just, just try it. And you can always throw it out or stop in the middle. And I'm not kidding. It's, it's 90 days. And I got done with the book in 50 days. And then I got it edited by two different people in the 90 days and did a rewrite and it just poured out of me. So I know when things go like that, that's like God speaking for me. Yeah. The the truth is not difficult if you're willing to tell it. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, the, the book is pretty graphic. It's, um, but it's nothing that we haven't heard that men and women have done. Yes. And, I, I think it's important to make the distinction between something being uh, titillating or sensational and something being graphic for the sake of saying, hey, here this is, no pun intended, warts and all. Yeah, exactly. And then through the character, through the story that's based obviously on me is she finds these 10 rules that work for her to get healthy and to actually be a whole person by herself with nobody else filling her. And that's 
my whole point of doing it. The, the decision to make it a character um, <laughs> completely based on your life was, was I, I think you mentioned in the foreword, was that so, so that you could throw a little bit of uh, question as to whether or not some of the more raunchy things it was actually you or not exactly i think i say something like uh these most of these are my stories but i'm never going to tell you which one you can use your imagination and all the character names are changed so right you know have fun enjoy right Right. (laughs) um so let's let's start from uh talking about what it was like being raised in in your house Well, I think the main thing when I looked back at my past is I never saw a healthy relationship. It was never mirrored. And both of my parents can say the same thing. So I'm not saying anything that they wouldn't be okay with me saying. But, you know, it wasn't healthy at all. They should have gotten divorced before I was even born. So that's the basis. If, If you're a young child... And you don't see how a man and woman can, should treat each other and respect each other. Right. How are you supposed to mirror that in your life later? Right. So that and then just, you know, them not being completely available and a father that, you know, is desperate to connect. And he uses his daughters to make that connection and them being everything to him. Um, a, a mother that's a very hard worker but put everything into her job and wasn't available to be a mother. And the beautiful thing is they both have said that's how they were raised. Mm -hmm. So when I went down my lineage, I saw, oh, my mom didn't know how to be a mother because her mom didn't know how to be a mother. And my dad didn't know how to be a great dad because his dad died. So it's lovely to look back and go, oh, I have compassion for them. That's such an important thing, too, because – a lot of people, I think, never really go back and process the stuff that was painful to them that they kind of buried and compartmentalized because they think that it's the only point of it is to blame somebody else, to throw mm-hmm. them under the bus and to punish them. When in reality, it's so that we can purge all of the pain and the sadness so we can stop punishing ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we bottle that in our bodies. I remember when I was going through withdrawal and like allowing the feelings to come and my sponsor at the time kept saying, and my therapist said, you have to dig through the shit to get to the gold. Yeah. And that just helped me allow myself to grieve and really look at my past and where I did wrong, others did wrong to me. But it's my job not to carry it around anymore and exactly. put it on anybody else. And and to continue to see yourself solely as a victim and to blame your actions on that. Because now we know better. We know there are better tools for coping with our feelings other than soothing ourselves with sex or using people or... Flirting, intrigue. Right. I mean, that was a big one for me. And I, you know, being in Hollywood, flirting is a way of life. You know, that's what we do in our job. You flirt. You walk into the room, you flirt. You you charm. You put it on. Mm-hmm. And I just can't do that anymore. It's it's so toxic for me to give that part of myself Um it, and it's not real. Talk about when you first started getting high from mm. sex and love addiction. Well, I remember at a very young age, I watched a lot of Shakespeare movies mm-hmm. with with my dad. He He's literature buff. And I watched Romeo and Juliet. 
And I remember seeing Michael White's butt in the love scene. And it was like a shot of heroin in my arm and, and them being in love. And I'm sitting there watching this movie wanting to be these two characters, both characters, the male and the female. How old were you? Oh, my God. I probably was like six. Young. It was very mm-hmm. young. And at the end, they both kill each other for lo- their true love. Mm-hmm. And that made my whole world. Like, if if you are willing to die for somebody else or they are willing to die for you, it must be true love. So for me, I carried that. Like, I'm either going to kill somebody or they're going to kill me. And if anything less is not real. And it had to be that dramatic and that intense. Because I was in love with falling in love. It was like the best high in the world. And and I think it it would be important, too, to talk about the word love. Because (laughs) I think a lot of us uh, that go to support groups around intimacy issues quickly learn that you can't be addicted to actual love it's it's the fake idea of love that that we're addicted to real love is not dramatic real love involves difficult conversations enduring each other's annoying habits (laughs) not cutting and running yeah um can you expand on that yeah i mean there's the fantasy idea of love which movies and television shows and all that and music and songs we just love just singing about this fantasy of love Mm. like it should be dramatic. It should be passionate. It should be, you do not take the, di- you know, put the you dishes away. You should be away. In, enmeshed. Enmeshed. Like, you can't live without each other. You can't breathe. You can't do anything. Like, it just, you're, you're soulmates. I hate the word soulmates, first of all. Like, I do not believe in a soulmate. That means somebody else completes me. I am my soulmate. So just that in general drives me nuts. But real love is actually not dramatic. There are hard conversations, but there's not the euphoria of ups and downs. I always say if someone's in a relationship and there's a ton of drama, something's off. Mm -hmm. It's the real hard conversations that you both admit each other's, you know, your wrongs and 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 compromise in the middle and own I your to, own your own shit. Own your own shit and Be- clean your side of the street, you right. know? Like I hate telling my husband I'm sorry. He'll even tell you it's like dragging the words. But now 10 years I can go into a room and go, I shouldn't have said that. I used a tone. And I can go in the other room and say, I'm sorry I was a little prickly. I'm feeling very vulnerable right now. I have a lot of stuff going on. Please accept my apology. I promise not to speak to you like that again. What was it like when you first started doing that? And what were the fears associated with that vulnerability and and saying, I'm sorry? It was, I remember the first couple of times I did it. I think it was year three or four in sobriety. It Mm -hmm. takes me a long time to admit when I'm wrong. I'm stubborn. I almost feel this knot in my chest, like not wanting to let it go, even though my mind says, let it go. It's not a big deal. I hold it in. But is is it pride or the f- fact that you feel like you might be attacked or or punished? I don't even know if it's pride or the, I I feel like it's a, losing my power. I see. Because for me, love and sex equals power. So when I have to admit that I'm wrong, 
my power is stripped away. But the truth is, that's when I'm the most powerful, is when I admit that I'm wrong and that I'm the person will love me anyways, and I still love myself. It's amazing. When, when we take that scary step to be vulnerable mm-hmm. with somebody, we give them an opportunity to reveal their character. Yeah. So either way, it's a win because we'll know more about them. We'll know that they're either somebody that wants to use that to get one over on you and use it as leverage, or it's somebody that will come closer to you and say, I see you, I love you, and thank you for that. Yeah, it was, and they mostly say, oh, when you said that, it then triggered me to say that. And it's digging deeper in yourself with mm-hmm. somebody else. Right. Yeah. So give me some snapshots, some some vignettes of your addiction as you progressed. Um, just some, we got the one from when you were six. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, did you even think about that as like, because um, I still glamorize it in my head. Like, I got to watch Romeo and Juliet at the age of six. And right. having a child now, I can't imagine showing him yes. that movie. I think it's child abuse to make a child sit through Shakespeare. <laughs> probably, it probably is, actually. That's so funny. <laughs> I actually wish I understood Shakespeare more, but instead I mock it because uh, I don't get it and a, a lot of it bores me. I know that 90% of our plot lines in modern drama are based, are based, you know, uh, starting with the Greeks and, you know, uh, expanded on by, by Shakespeare, but... It just always makes me feel stupid. Yeah, and so, totally. So if I feel stupid, I'm going to attack you rather yeah. than saying, well, maybe I should uh, set about to learn a little bit more about this and be curious. Yeah. I'd rather set it on fire and then shit on it. Yeah. <laughs> I just assume the position and act like I know what they're saying. Yes. And then I just, it's like false sense of egotism. I yes. <laughs> um, vignettes. Let's see. Vignettes. Well, I've cheated on Every person I've ever been with, you know, had multiple boyfriends at one time. And none of them knew, obviously, about no. the other one. Yeah. Uh, well, not intentionally, as to the first chapter of your book, <laughs> it, it, that house comes crashing down. What would you think or feel when you would have a boyfriend and there was nobody else, mm-hmm. and then you would find yourself flirting with the intention? Was the intention to cheat, or would you lie to yourself and say, um, oh, I just find this person interesting. It's not going to go that far. Oh, God, that is such a great question. I feel like it was never even thought of that much. I, I, I would find a boyfriend. Here's my pattern. I would find a boyfriend. I would be enamored and totally in it for probably a year, year and a half. And then, you know, the reality of the human their the magical qualities I put on them, they could never measure up to. Mm-hmm. So I would start, you know, turning the wheel slowly of like disconnecting a little bit. Would you pull away or start picking at them? All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just because it was getting too real for me and I wasn't really available. And I was also playing a role like mm-hmm. I signed myself this role i would see what they would i could read someone really fast and say oh this is how they want me to be so i would act like that and then i can't 
keep playing the role because it's not real to who I am. And do you feel like you were playing the role because if they saw the real you, they would leave or you would have to have difficult conversations or you didn't know any better? What 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 do you think? I think it really comes down to I never even knew the real me. I started acting out at such a young age. I I was so introduced to sex and love so early that, you know, by the age of of fifth grade, I had a boyfriend, and I remember this. I I don't talk about it in the book, but he wanted to kiss me. He like called and said, "Will you next time we see each other, can we kiss?" And I don't even know how old a, a fifth grader is, but I said no. Like I didn't know how to do that, and so you were afraid, or yeah, you, or I just you just didn't, didn't want to. I was afraid. I mean, yeah. young those emotions they're overwhelming. And he broke up with me. So then after that, I realized at a very young age, my role as a as a female and a girl is to provide, you know. To please. To please. But I also resented the boys in the class and the men that they had all the power. And so internally, I was like, it- I'm going to act like a boy because I don't like feeling this like – you know, like I'm from the South, so women are even more less powerful. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm going to act like a boy in secret. No one's going to know the real me because I don't even know the real me. Uh, act like a boy in secret by by being sexual? Or I think how do you mean? Okay, a lot of the women in the South that I grew up with, there's this perfect angelic outside appearance. But then internally, you're like a secret slut. So behind closed doors, I would act one way, and then in front of other people, I would mm-hmm. la- act another way, like perfect, pristine, mm-hmm. put together. I'm right. so sweet, you know? <laughs> Let's talk about the the word uh, slut for a second. It's such a, a loaded word and so often used to shame somebody and then other people will will use it you know to feel free and empowered and talk about themselves um has your view of that word changed since you were a kid and how you use it or how you feel when other people use it that's interesting i actually rarely use the word and it's interesting that i just used it right now right um because it shocked me a little bit. Yeah, that, I that, never that used that used word. It. Right. I can't even tell you. I mean, I've used the word whore more than a slut. Um, I have no problem if someone wants to act slutty. And she made the air quotes. Air quotes, yes. But I also, for me, I don't see anymore how that empowers a woman. Right. You know? Um, but yeah, I... I see it as um i don't know i i I see such a double standard Mm -hmm. um you know sometimes people will use you know the male slut uh, etc but there doesn't seem to be any real hurt on the part of the men who that is applied to i think no it's applauded right um it so i guess the question is how do you find, as a woman, how do you find sexual freedom and liberation and battle that idea that was planted in you that it's okay for men 
to be promiscuous, but it's not okay for women. How, 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 what's that like navigating that as a woman? Aside from having a sex and love addiction, Gracie, come here. Hi, Gracie. Um, I actually don't think now it's okay for a man or a woman. I don't morally think, or for their own health. I think for their own health. I am. I believe people are allowed to have multiple partners and do what they want to do. I just think sex is a byproduct of a loving relationship, a friendship. Yeah, that I think a woman acting like a slut or a man acting like a slut, there's something in them that is disconnected Mm -hmm. because I see now sex is like the icing on a cake in a relationship. Do you see times, assuming somebody, this isn't an addiction for them, when, you know, for lack of a better word, sport fucking uh, can be an okay thing emotionally for, I for think somebody. I if, if both people involved are more than Transparent. One, are transparent, and there's no secrets. Yeah. But my whole acting out was built on secrets and lies. Yeah. So if you're holding a secret and then you're doing this, something is not connected. Something right. is not real, and that's right. where I think it gets shady. There, there's so much gray area in it, <laughs> and for each person, it's all so subjective. And, you know, that's one, one of the reasons why uh, I think uh, a podcast is such a great medium to talk about something that's that's so complicated mm-hmm. and so loaded uh, in how we talk about it in, in society. Um, so uh, continuing with, um, so you started acting like a boy. Yes. Uh, quote, unquote. Quote. Yes, I was always jealous I didn't actually have a penis. Like I really want, it's not that I wanted to be a boy physically or anything, but I just loved how men like didn't have to get penetrated or like they mm-hmm. were always in the power position, I feel. So that's what I was always emulating as in my sexualness. Was uh, pornography ever a thing for you? No, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't ever a thing for me yeah. at all. So give me some more s- snapshots. Another snap, you know, the first time I cheated on a guy was at the age of 13 and it was at a party. I I was in the closet and this this young boy kissed me when I had another boyfriend upstairs in the house. Paul, I am not kidding to you. That was the best moment. It was like every drug in my body. And That's from, the high you chased for the rest of... For the rest of my life, I've been chasing that kiss in the closet. Like, it wasn't even a great kiss, but it was out of this world high. And I've been chasing that ever since. What do you think about it made it so incredible for that part of you? I think it was just like... The overwhelming power over this one person and then the other person in the house and that the secret of that one intimate moment was just mine and Ah. then I can control it any way I want it to. Right. Like I'm not the one being fooled. Yes. Like I'm, I'm in control of this. Right. I'm the one desired. So it was always chasing that desire, the power over the person that is desiring me. And then when I got over them or they weren't exciting anymore, 
I would somehow try to discard them before mm-hmm. they discarded me. I know there are a lot of people listening right now who are have have struggles with compulsively acting out or cheating and their moral code is not in sync with that Mm -hmm. and they hate themselves for doing that but there's something some payoff that they get from it and they can't understand who this other person is inside of them or people that shoplift or whatever it is that they do and you know, I suppose that's the nature of addiction is this Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Um, Two faces. So when, when did you realize this is really becoming a problem for me? Well, I knew around my high school year when I did have two boyfriends. This was another little vignette snapshot for you to get an idea. And I was with these two people for two years and did they go to the same high school? One of them aren't just graduated, I see. but everybody in high school knew. So except the boy in high school, the, yeah, except yeah. the two guys. But right. everybody knew that I was seeing both of them, and and we were at another party, of course. Uh, I was in the car with one of them, and the other one was literally banging on the car window, telling me to get out. And I just turned to the driver, got my other the other guy and said, take up, go. And what a metaphor for, yeah. or an analogy <laughs> for the fear of intimacy. I go. And then I still got them both to still be with me. And that it happened be- again at my house. It was insane. And I kept saying, this is something is seriously wrong with this picture. Like, I love to almost get caught and then manipulate the situation and turn it around on somebody else and then get everything I want and then destroy it all over. Like, something is wrong with this picture. Uh, I I don't know. Maybe it was a, a year or so into recovery that I began to realize that sex wasn't the biggest no. payoff it was the high of manipulating and yeah. controlling that that would i would feel the drug surging through my body just beginning to contemplate you know doing something that was uh, secretive no sex it wasn't even really about sex that's just a little tiny thing it was about the game it was about the intrigue the flirting the the fantasy the first time you go out with the person which anybody can recognize with when you go out with someone new there is this adrenaline that goes through your body mm-hmm. if you can imagine chasing that adrenaline all the time that's why i said i am in love with being in love because mm-hmm. that high is like no other high and i remember when i i was you know, starting to get healthy and a guy came in and I think you, you, you and I have talked about this. He came in and said, I can quit heroin, but I can't quit her. Yeah. And that just hit me because I'm like, Oh, I don't have a problem. Okay. I just like, I like attention. It's not a big deal. Oh, I like this. It's not a big deal. And it's like, no, it is a big deal. You're using other people as your drug and that is not okay anymore. And it's it's interesting, too, because when we come in there, we have no idea that underneath this is sadness and shame and loneliness and worthlessness, feeling zero self-esteem. Yeah, it it, it used to flow for me. It was like I was either 
egotistical are the biggest piece of shit. There was yeah. no in between. Yeah. Yeah. The one, the two that also shocked me was perfectionism and fear of responsibility. Who wants to adult up? Right. One of the chapters is it's time to adult up. Like right. that's the rule. Like you're adulting up now in my book. And, and then perfectionism is just, it's like it can destroy you. And I guess it makes sense because those are both ways of building a wall between ourselves and somebody else. Uh, you know, I think the fear of responsibility for a lot of us came because maybe we were raised in households where trusting um, meant to either be abandoned or devoured. Oh, yeah. And um, perfectionism be for a lot of us was I can't be myself for for me to survive or feel like I'm surviving in this environment. I have to be who people need me to be. Yeah. Yeah. At at two of a young age for right. that to happen. We don't have the capacity. Yeah. And I also think too uh, the generations before us had children so young. Yeah. And and they didn't believe in self-help and therapy. And I even mentioned to my mom one time, have you ever thought about going to a therapist? And Which I believe in therapy is a great tool. I used mm. to go two times a week, especially when I was first getting healthy. And my mom was like, I'm past the age for that. And I just looked at her and I said, okay, you do you, you know? Good for you. But But – I just think like having children so young and being a mother now, I can't imagine having a child when I was 20. Yeah. I, I had, Especially their generation that had very little modeled for them in terms oh, of yeah. emotional intelligence. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even, I mean, my parents, they, they didn't even talk about emotion. Right. Yeah. So I, I am very grateful that I am healthy and, and. I see that now and I've gone through all this because I can't imagine still living on the other side yeah. of this addiction or any addiction. There are times when we'll be at the same uh, support group and I feel shame that I haven't done, quote, as well in the program as you. And I, and I worry that you look at me like, oh, my God, poor Paul. He just can't, he just can't get it together. That is so, see how what we think of ourselves, like the story you made up of what I think of you because you're ashamed of your growth or whatever. First of all, we are not allowed to compare and despair ourselves to anybody else's journey. And that's another thing I talk about, the compare and despair. Like you're mm -hmm. always have to be above or below. And it's like, you and I are really great friends and we've, shared some pretty dark shit and cried on each other. And the last thing I would want is for me to, I am have no, your journey is your journey, you know, but that's, see how insane we are sometimes. We're like, that person must think that of, of yeah. me. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's just our attic brain sometimes just take us on a trip. Yeah. And that's the farthest thing. I mean, every time I see you, I'm like, oh, there's my, there's one of my guys, you know, because mm -hmm. I don't have guy friends outside of our groups. Yeah. And you're one of my guys. I appreciate that. And I feel, I feel the same way uh, about you. I, I, 
growing up, I always wanted to have sisters. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me one day, you know, after I'd been in our group for a while, wow, I do have sisters. I'm not related through blood, but I can lean on them. They can lean on me. And it's a really, it's a really good feeling. And I think for a lot of us who struggle with intimacy issues and relationship issues, there's no way around the necessity to see the other sex or gender as human flaws and all and see really how alike we are in a lot of ways. We are completely the same. That's the best thing. One of the best things other than, you know, being able to connect to my husband doing all this work, but the is seeing a male and a man as a human being. And when I was acting out, and my dad, which he's very sensitive man, he's a very sensitive man. So when a male would cry or have feelings, what I would do, like my mother, is suck it up. Like I don't want to see you cry. Mm. It actually turned. You me would tell off. them suck it up. Yeah, or you would think all of the above again. Like I would look at a man, and if they started crying, I almost wanted to make them cry more sometimes yeah like there was a that that like vindictive like i want you to be in much pain as i am internally so when a male cried sometimes i would laugh i couldn't help myself oh that's so dark so dark and horrible i mean there's the that's the shadow of me but coming in and 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 getting close to you and and all of our other friends it's when you speak or someone else speaks i see me Mm-hmm. And that we're all the same. We all want love. We all want acceptance. We don't want to be abandoned. We want to feel like enough just as we are. We want to be seen. Yeah. The real us to be seen. Yeah. And and not rejected. Yeah. So every human wants that. So if you see someone struggling or any, I feel like that is what you can take away is like, they are just like me. They might be having a bad day. They might not be feeling the best, even though they're acting like a total asshole, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I was watching this uh, series last night called Dirty Money, and one of the biggest resentments that I struggle with are people who are, you know, quote-unquote, the the 1% oh. that behave immorally and harm other people financially. Yeah. And this guy that they were doing it on was the epitome of that and i felt such rage watching him and when i feel rage you know the part of me that's in recovery immediately goes okay what's the spiritual answer for dealing with this rage that you have it's to have compassion for for this guy couldn't feel it (laughs) and i thought okay then i have to find the part of myself that is like him yeah and i thought i've used people mm-hmm. i've gone against my moral code usually because i was afraid and yeah. this guy probably didn't get what he needed emotionally as a child and this is the only way he knows how to feel safe yeah or he's a psychopath and fuck him <laughs> <laughs> but i never realized that all of those things have to do with intimacy, have to do with the ability to form an, an intimate, trusting relationship with Sony. Gracie is getting very impatient. I know. She really likes me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
I, I, and by the way, I apologize that I'm going off on these so many of these tangents uh, <laughs> about my my own life. But when I am talking to somebody who's such a kindred spirit, um, I just love the feeling of community and being able to say not only for myself but for people listening, she is not the only one. Yeah, this this is a universal thing for. So many of us. So many of us. I mean, the 10 years that I've been doing this, the people I've met all over the world, that struggle that you would have no idea, and the one percenters you think that have everything struggle with this. And I actually think, and I'm going to get on my soapbox now, but social media and society, we are amplifying this problem the swipe left the swipe right the always looking for more the filter put on the filter look the best like show the most skin all of that is the porn you can watch porn at any time anywhere i just watched this whole thing is like we are going to see the damage in this generation coming up about how disconnected they are from each other and from you know, the concept of love and the concept of connection and what a real relationship looks like. Yeah. I mean, when we started in our 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 group, it was small. Mm. It wasn't that big. I mean, 30 people maybe, yeah. 40 maybe. You go now and it's like 100 people. It's yeah. like 80 people. It And the younger and younger people are coming in, which I'm happy about. Yeah, me too. Because, man, if the younger can get this and get that, no one's going to fill you. There's not going to be a swipe right, swipe left, perfect person out there. Right. And real connection is not attractive all the time. One, that's so true. And one of the things that I would love to see is a lessening of this culture on social media of shaming mm. people. I mean, people need to be held accountable for their actions, but shaming somebody, yelling at each other is not the way mm-hmm. to to do it. You know, we can we can give somebody consequences for their behavior and still have compassion for them. It's difficult, but that's what I would love to see because it's going to be hard for somebody to to want to grow and integrate back into society when they feel like they're going to be hated. But if they feel like people are rooting for them and they can see that, oh, this person is sick, but they want to do better, that's a motivation for that for that person to get well, assuming that they're not like a Harvey Weinstein who clearly has, in my opinion, zero conscience and is a sociopath, psychopath, whatever whatever you want to call it. So what's the next bit of your story after this um no 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 um leading to your downfall your your moment of uh clarity oh gosh i think i think there was just it was a it was just a whirling wind of i'm in a relationship with this man that i do love as much as i can love and I'm about to mess it up all over again. And I just thought to myself, am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Is this when your husband was your boyfriend? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was 11 years ago almost, where I was like, am I going to be always looking for this man that is never 
gonna, mm-hmm. no man is ever gonna fill me. And I, I talk in the book, uh, Roxanne, the lead, the character talks about how she would love to take three or four guys and mold them together. <laughs> Like if she could take little pieces and put mm-hmm. a, the perfect man together, and I'm sure every anybody has thought that. Like, oh, right. I, I like this about this person, and then yeah. and I actually had a girlfriend the other day that has come in the room a couple times say that to me, and honestly wanting to do this with like mm-hmm. these three guys, and I was just looking at her going, uh huh, okay, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> so I, I, it just came, like I'm gonna be doing this the rest of my life. If I can't make it work with this person that I consider my best friend and I respect as an individual, something is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. It really it it mirrored back everything about me like something is broken. So going to therapy, it was finally revealed like you have this problem. Right. You can't connect with another person. Right. And I think it's important too to distinguish between that and let's say somebody who is your friend that has feelings for you, but you're not attracted to them, you know, just because they may be a spiritual person that mm-hmm. you respect and you enjoy their friendship. That doesn't mean, you know, you're sick because you don't want to be in a relationship with them. No, you know, this was a person I was still attracted to and but I was still attracted to. But then my body didn't want to be intimate. If I fall in, if I love somebody which after a year and a half, that starts to develop. I don't think you're magically in love with someone right away. I think you're in love with the what you think they are. Mm-hmm. And then you, the years and months go by and you're like, oh, this is who this person is. And I loved this person. And then I stopped wanting to be sexual with this person because it was too intimate. So then what I go outside and look for that need to be filled, that's not right for my partner. So it was just me going, oh, my God, am I going to be 60, 70 years old doing this the rest of my life? Am I going to be on my deathbed and never connect to another soul? It's funny that that is the thought that I had that brought me into our group was I was like, I'm going to die never knowing what real sexual intimacy is. And I didn't realize that it had very little to do with sex. sex yeah that's just really how the pimple presents itself exactly right. so then what happened i i came in i got on my knees i i said you know when when you if you're with someone that's healthy or is as healthy as healthy can be we usually advise don't leave that because it has nothing to do with that person but if you're single or by yourself, you stay by yourself and you do the work. So I decided to stay, but do the work on me. And my brutal withdrawal, which you ha- saw firsthand, was nine months of just crying every day, getting rid of all my guy friends, not flirting. I think, you know, the first year I didn't even look waiters in the eyes. I didn't even have, like, interact with males at all. Talk about the time that you were on the floor crying. Oh, yeah. Um, In the privacy of your home, not in the middle of our group. (laughs) Or just on the sidewalk or something. (laughs) No, I I remember that I was on the carpet with this. It felt like like a snake or something was coming out of my body, crawling at the carpet, just tears welling up in my eyes. And I remember that I was sitting there. And I couldn't shut my mouth. 
It was like, uh, was coming outside of my body. It was all this trauma and grieving and shame and everything. It was just like coiling out of my body and the tears were coming down. And I looked at the clock again and 45 minutes had passed. And I just kept thinking, wow. And I let myself grieve. So if you're grieving, like let yourself grieve because that's been stuck in your body. And that's what my therapist kept telling me. This is stuck in your body. And it's that's what causes cancer and, and disease. Let it and out. And addiction. And addiction. And at least process addiction. Yeah, yeah. So mm. I just let it out. And it was like an exorcism. And my throat, it felt like I had the worst um, you know, sore throat for the entire night. Like my throat hurt so bad. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I never want to go through that again. It's it's the most beautiful, brutal thing you can you can go through. Yeah. And it's so difficult. So many people come into our group and they just can't handle it. They can't handle the withdrawal of that pharmacy in our brain. Yeah. It is it's open twenty four hours and we're surrounded, you know, and this is where I think the context that your book was written in being in this city, you know, being uh, addicted to acting out or, you know, wanting to avoid intimacy and putting on a face and all that other stuff, playing a role. Struggling with that is is like trying to get sober in a, in a town that rains whiskey. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's valued. Oh, it's put on a pedestal. It's looked at as like the end all be all. But I just couldn't do it anymore. I did. I, I don't think you know this, but when I did walk into therapy um, before coming and, and meeting everybody is my therapist told me, you almost have the face of a prostitute, like a high class prostitute. You wear the same mask. So she didn't mean the literal physical face no, of a prostitute the, the mask that i, I wore you. like the fake the the mask over my face she said yes. you remind me the mask you wear of a high class prostitute wow. and i've never been a prostitute that wasn't my thing um but i just thought yeah because i've been wearing a mask for my career like i've been in this business 20 something years and i d i'm like an actor going into a room playing it playing not a real person already mm -hmm. so it's a town full of that have there first of all what might people have seen you in that that they would know you from well coming out now is lucifer on netflix okay. um but i've been the last two years i've been on six mm -hmm. on the history channel about uh, navy seals and pretty much any other television show I've probably been on right. <laughs> or Jarhead, Prom Night, you know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Have there been moments that you could share where you were filming something or, you know, you were, you found this, this addiction butting its head into your work life? If you go on any... I'm sure any job, like an office, you become a family, right? Right. Like everybody, you get entwined into each other's lives and each other's drama. You know, you start hating certain people in your office or whatever. If you can imagine that, but amplified by a thousand, 
how close you get on a set. Mm -hmm. So if you go on location, say I'm going to Kansas there for a month, I am escaping my real reality and going to put myself in this intimate, intimate creative relationship with all these interesting kind of people and we're building something together. We're creating this movie. It, it feels like you've known these people forever. Mm -hmm. So it's creating this false sense of intimacy. It amplifies it. You're not at your normal house. You don't have to pay bills. You're usually going to a hotel. So there's room service. So it's a little glamorous. People are catering to you. And then you have to act out that you're in love with someone. Mostly love scenes are put on the first day of shooting. Really? Every single love scene I have almost had is usually the first day. What is that like? It It's 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 funny because I actually, when I watch myself or I don't feel like it's me. And I'm still, it still feels like that. But, but like day one on Jarhead was naked day. Everybody got naked almost on that day. All the guys got naked. Everybody did. It was, and to be forced to be acting out an intimate scenario with the stranger you just met in the makeup room maybe for five minutes because you're usually getting makeup getting rushed to your wardrobe putting on your wardrobe you know it just it just it's so, a breeding ground for fake intimacy <laughs> so what comes up in you in that moment what are you thinking or feeling as you're enacting that that scene are you shut down are you in fantasy are you you know, uh, dissociating what, what's, I suppose it depends on who the person is and what the movie is and how you're feeling that day. I guess it does depend on that, but I, it's almost like a role comes over you. I'm not a method actor by any means, but you definitely assume the position because you want to do the job. You want to portray a loving relationship between the couple you're portraying on television Mm -hmm. or film. But, You know, and then usually there's flirting between you and your co-stars because you're trying to like create some chemistry. Yeah, because you know, and you're both nervous and insecure. Yes, and then when you get on this the scene and you have the grip, the you know, the camera guy, the director, the producers all looking at you, even if it's a closed set, there's usually a handful of people that have to be on it. They're all watching you. So it's not like the sex or the romantic of doing the scene. That's more like a dance. It's mm. I, I've never gotten been like, ooh, that was a hot scene. But afterwards, it's like it's the buildup to it that mm. is can be a little tricky. All I would be able to think of is, oh, my God, the guy that hangs the lights can see my butthole. Totally. <laughs> That that would be, that's probably why I'm not a very good actor, is that would be, I would feel so exposed. You you are very exposed. But here's the thing I know, because I've talked to so many grips and been doing it so long that they're so over it and not, they they usually are looking at their phone or waiting for you to hurry up because they need to set up for the next shot before lunch. Like people that work in an ER. No, <laughs> no. I'm saying it's like people that work in an ER. Yeah, it's, it's like, like, come on, let's get this over with. Yeah, they don't really care that somebody shit their pants. They're <laughs> like, okay, you yeah. know, we've seen five of this today. <laughs> exactly, but yeah. that's... <laughs> so, what's the next uh, part? Do you, do you want to... Sh- well, you we, we've talked about you getting into program. You went through the withdrawal period. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of the pain came out. What did it feel like as you began to exercise this grief, this sadness, this pain? What did it feel like in your body, in your brain? How did it present itself in your daily life? Road rage. Right. (laughs) I definitely had a, when I was going through withdrawal, through the pain, like the road rage. But then it it evened out after that nine months, you know. I still go through waves of moments where things hit me and I'm triggered, but they only last a short period of time because I have the tools now. Like I, I, I pray to a God that I don't understand all the time. I write a gratitude list every time. I I turned to something bigger than myself. And that's what really helped me through the grieving is I just kept being like, God, you, whoever my God is, you take this. Like, you help me get rid of this pain. I'll walk through it, but I, you take it. You take care of me. You take it. And that really helped me. But roadway rage was a really hard time for me. And, um, and then I had to really look at my female friendships after the emotion. I realized I was using my female friends too. In what way? So say I'm in, I'm in pain, right? And I'm in the car and I just got bad news and I, I didn't get something I really wanted. I, I had this moment. It was off Melrose. Mel, I was leaving Paramount. And it was off Melrose. And I pulled over and I called one of my girlfriends and I said, blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. grieving, uh, telling her what just happened, getting into the drama of it. And I was on the phone with her for like 25 minutes and she had to go and I hung up and I picked up the phone. And I dialed another friend and I kept her on for what, 15 minutes. Then I dialed another friend and I did that for four people sitting in my car on the side of the road. And I thought it, it, it was like a wave of water hit me. And it was like, I just emotionally raped three of my friends. I took time out of their day and tried to get them to heal me. And that's not okay. Talk about the difference between that and utilizing the friendships in a moderate (laughs) way, which is such a healthy thing. Was it because you didn't ask them how their day was or probably didn't that it was, you just turned them, them into an audience as opposed to it being a conversation. I think it was also, I was looking for them to fix it. I see. It's nobody else's job to fix it. Yes, it's great to reach out to a friend when you're struggling and say, I'm really struggling. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in pain. I am hurting. This is what happened. Um, I'm just reaching out like, I, you know, that right. instead of me calling them, dumping all my drama on them, getting into the minutia of the drama is a big one. And then not really listening to what they're telling me because oh, it's see. not fixing me. I got you. And then, and then doing it again. Even if I do it once, like it's actually, that's not healthy at all. Yeah. So. And, and I, that's such a, a great distinction to make because um, one is healthy and the other is toxic. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's for me, that word emotionally raping other people to fill me in any way is just not okay with, it's just not okay anymore. So where are you at today? You got a, you got a kid. Davis is how old? He's 22 months. Yeah. Yeah. I have a kid, which is crazy because I never wanted a kid and I never wanted to get married. 
thought you were a chump if you did those things. <laughs> <laughs> I was just too selfish and self-seeking. But doing all this and, and like I have a family that I show up for, that show up for me. And I am giving without taking. And there's I have no expectations on my son to fill me at all. Or like, your husband. Or my husband. But him and I have a communication. Right. But even if I'm mama's like upset, say I didn't get a job that I just wanted and I'm crying and and my husband and I are there and he's like, Mama's sad, you know, to, mm -hmm. to our son and you know, before I would have probably said, come give mama a hug and make her feel better, which is fine. But that's not my son's job right. to come make mama feel better. No, I and I don't think it's fine. I think it's human to have that feeling. But yeah. To, but to use that kid to, to fill you is so damaging for that kid. But I did, wouldn't even know I was doing that. Right. Because it's just like, oh, my son's sitting giving me a sad face and I, mm. I want to hug because I feel... I wouldn't even know I was using my son to fill me, right. to make me feel better. And that's right. not okay. Yeah. So I just say now to my son, mama's just having feelings. She can have her feelings. Go play with your toys. And then when I'm done crying and he wants to give me a hug, then that's okay. But right. I didn't have those tools. Right. A big difference between him approaching you and you going to him for comfort. Yes. So I, I that's where my life looks now. No job in Hollywood gets me high. No material object now gets me high. It, It's such a beautiful way to live. Honestly, like even though, you know, everything's not perfect or how I imagine my life should mm -hmm. look. I'm living the dream because I'm truly committed to another person, even though intimacy is still hard with my husband. Who wants to take care of a baby and then go be intimate at 8 o'clock at night? I'm exhausted. But him and I can talk about it. We mm -hmm. can, you know, be communicative. We can, you know, make plans and make sure to be hug and be intimate and, mm -hmm. and not put our child before us. And all those things I would have never had. I didn't really look at my crap. One of the things that I love that you share sometimes is that if you and your husband were to divorce, you would be okay. I would be. And he knows that. Yeah. I would be sad. Right. I would be, you know, crushed, but I wouldn't be broken. Nobody right. can break me anymore. I'm not, if a guy doesn't like me or give me attention or doesn't an uh, unavailable person doesn't show up for me even a friend or any situation it doesn't break me anymore i let myself feel those feelings of rejection right i show up in our, our our groups i call a friend i turn to my god and i meditate or pray but nothing breaks me oh and that is so freeing yeah. because I will say when people start looking at their crap, they're like, this is boring. This is the most boring existence. Like there's nothing fun. There's no drama. There's no. It, and you're like, what? what's the point of living? It's so freeing now. This is the point of living. And I think as, as you go through withdrawal from whatever it is your addiction is, you begin to unnumb, mm -hmm. you know, because the, the problem when we're in the middle of our addiction, there's such jolts of energy and feeling 
that everything else pales in comparison. Yeah. And so when you remove that from your life, then you can feel the beautiful, subtle things yeah. in life. You get back in touch with your body. You can even smell better than you smelled. You can just walk outside and it's like, oh my God, I can smell the, the earth, uh, you know, the dirt. It's I can. the little moments or yeah. the little moments with a friend or little moments with your significant other or like seeing a flower. I mean, that sounds cheesy, but it's the truth because yeah. before anything less than euphoria wasn't good enough for yeah. us. Yeah. Everything else was horrible and numb. That's what I felt. It's like numb. Like, what is the matter with me that I feel nothing for this person that's crying in front of me that I just broke? Yeah. What is the matter <laughs> with me? And I think we should end on that. What is the matter with me? And it was me. Yes. So uh, the the name of your book again? Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. And I imagine people can get it wherever books are sold. Yes, it's coming out very soon. And then Huffing, I wrote a big article for Huffington Post that's coming mm. out March 9th. And yeah. And uh, do you have a date for the release of the book? Not yet. We're dealing with that right now. But I do okay. already have a website, okay. Secret Hollywood Sex and Love. So all the information will be there. Okay. Yeah. Brianne, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Love talking to her. Uh, she also has a new podcast called The Secret Life Podcast. And you can find it on iTunes or wherever. And I was uh, actually just a guest, uh, I think, two episodes ago. But I'll put a link to it on the show notes for this episode. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself double new double squirt action. And she writes, for the last four years since adopting a cat for my mom, I've had to listen to her constantly praise it for doing nothing more than eating and shitting. This is the same woman who would freak out and shame me anytime I wanted seconds at dinner. I hate this fucking cat sometimes. Thank you for that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Blank Man about his depression. Uh, he writes, a major depressive disorder. Anytime I begin to enjoy my life for any period of time, it sneaks up on me and reminds me it can send me crashing down anytime it wants. Oh, oh, buddy, do I know what that is like. It is like a stalker. It is like a stalker. It's so hard to just lean into the the joy when you do feel it. It's like eating pie. Part of you is enjoying it and the other part of you knows that slowly it's going away. About his anxiety, like a thousand screaming thoughts are rushing past me in my head in all directions all the time and if I'm miscatching any of them, something bad will happen and it will be my fault. About his OCD, if I don't keep clean, everything I have will become irrevocably contaminated and my whole life will be ruined. About his codependency, I constantly filter the world through the perspective of the person I'm closest to and never through my own because I trust their judgment more than mine. That is a great one. Oh, that is such a great one. Thank you for those. Those were awesome. Uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Maniki Nico. And about her depression, she writes, let's do nothing and feel bad about it. When we're finished, let's rather do nothing. It's too much to handle. About being a sex crime victim, thinking it 
thinking it is all in the past, but every now and then, you find your way into my dreams. You disgust me and make me disgust myself. A snapshot from her life. One of my biggest struggles is to keep contact with family and friends. It's not that I don't want them in my life. It is just too exhausting to keep up the impression that everything is perfectly fine. So here comes the snapshot. My boyfriend, also struggling with depression, and I moved into a new apartment a year ago. So far, we still sleep in the living room because the bedroom still needs renovating, as do the kitchen and parts of the other rooms. The whole apartment is a mess, and I'm so ashamed by that. The only people I invited so far are my aunt and uncle. I uninvited with a lame excuse on literally the last second. They were standing in front of the house. They did not say anything. They were very disappointed. Though they did not say anything, they were very disappointed. I felt so ashamed and still do not know how to be able to let them see how I really am. That last minute cancel is so, oh, it's just like a shining diamond. And the moment when you back out of plans and you just feel so, it's like a, it's like a hit of heroin. You don't have to go out of the house. You don't have to put on a shirt that's not wrinkled. You don't have to have awkward conversations. But here's the thing, so often we're wrong. What we predict it to be like, we would never have been able to predict. That was a really awkward way of saying sometimes we're wrong about what we think the night holds. Some of the most profound connective emotional experiences I have had have been despite not wanting to go out. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Crow's Feet. And about her PTSD, she writes, it feels like I'm splitting into two people, the one who can see what's happening and the one who can feel what's happening. That, that, that is profound. I would love to get a neurologist's take on that on what the brain is doing at that point or see an MRI of a brain during that this is from the uh, pandemic survey and these are answers to the question have there been any moments during the quarantine slash pandemic that have made you laugh or smile Um, and these are just different people's responses seeing my son dance will always make me laugh and smile calling the neighbors for driveway beers Lots of them. Staying home is great insulation. But something noteworthy to share is that I found the perfect mask. It has a pattern of horses and donuts. Fuck yeah. Do horses dip their donuts in their coffee? If you notice, horses never put creamer. I think it's their kind of their their brotherhood with the cows. This person writes, definitely kittens have made me laugh and just smile and relax. They are so fun. Seeing my friend's newborn baby smile. Other reactions to things make me smile and laugh too. The crabs at the beach that hang out in the rocks. 
They hang out, hide when people pass by, and then come out and just stand there or fight each other or run from one little body of water to the other. This person writes, after dropping off a birthday present for my three-year-old nephew, I played peekaboo with him for a few minutes. He was in the house and I was outside. The window we were in front of was closed, so our voices were a bit muffled, but I could still hear his laughter and see his smiling face, and he could see and hear mine. Oh, that's beautiful. This person writes, oddly enough, the most laughing I do right now is with my therapist. I never feel more free than I do when I'm laughing, and I never feel more joyful than I do when I'm making someone laugh. Loving that. This person writes, reconnecting and getting to know my sister over phone conversations has been nice and feels hopeful. Thank you for those. Those are awesome. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as dead inside about their anxiety. It feels like my brain is a computer designed specifically to come up with all the bad things that could happen. And I call that the Catastrophizer 4000. You know, the Catastrophizer 5000 is supposed to be released uh, later this fall. And I look forward to the upgrade about her borderline personality disorder. It's like a wooden roller coaster where you can feel all the little bumps constantly and you have bad chronic back pain and you're so happy when the ride stops and you feel good for once, but then you can't get off the ride because of your bad back and it starts to move again and you just want to hurt yourself so you can feel a different pain or just jump off the ride. Thank you for that. I can't imagine how overwhelming having borderline personality disorder must be. It sounds so, so intense. This is from the Happy Moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself somebody. And she writes, the last couple of months have been a daily battle with suicidal ideation, but days like today make me realize I can handle it and I will just get better and better. What brought on this genuine peace today? Question mark. Today I listened to Dave Matthews for the first time in years. 19-year-old me thought Dave Matthews was deeply philosophical, and perhaps he is, but the lyrics to his song seem trite now, and I have felt stupid for liking his music so much, mostly by judgment from my peers as well as my own developing tastes. But today his music reminds me of who I am and where I came from. Sure, the lyrics may seem a little trite, but I've learned that sometimes simple truths can be the most powerful thing to clearing one's head. On that note, here is a lyric. My head won't leave my head alone, and I don't believe it will till I'm dead and gone. So here's to being my authentic self, validating myself, setting boundaries, and making a home within myself instead of seeking it in other people, and to telling my head to shut up. Nobody asked you a damn thing. I love that. I love that. I have to say, one of the most accurate songs about depression that I have ever heard is a Dave Matthew song called uh, Gray Street. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. And I and I think uh, the, I don't know, intensity that some people don't like Dave Matthews with, uh, I don't know, I think it's on undeserved but then again there's bands that that I can I can't even stand the mention of their their name 
because they just, everything about them irks me from their style of music to their lyrics to the way they dress to how other people like them, people that I respect and like. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself No More. Uh, he was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it, uh, but he doesn't specify. And also some stuff happened, and he doesn't know if it counts as sexual abuse. And he doesn't elaborate on that. Also has been physically and emotionally abused, but doesn't elaborate on that. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I have a deep aversion to people. The notion of partnering with the dead is nice. I find necrophilia derogatory. I think he means the, the, the name or the term derogatory, uh, the name necrophilia to be derogatory. Uh, they wouldn't leave you, judge you, say that it's not working out, that they have been seeing someone else. It would be unconditional and permanent love. I like the cold touch and I don't mind the smell. I've also thought of hurting others en masse. They wouldn't laugh at me. Then I... Laugh at me then, but I don't want people to feel like I do, to feel bad. The thought of someone mentally unstable loving me, that undying fearless love for only me, no issue hurting others. They take me away and keep me just for them. Darkest secrets. I saw a guy OD and I didn't do a thing. Every moment since I have wanted to die. The shame and guilt is immense. Well, let me say to that... Did you inject him? Did you inject him against his will? That would be something to feel shame and guilt about. But he made a choice to do that. As as terrible as his overdose is, I think it's time that you uh, unburden yourself from, from that, said the pot to the kettle. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, partnering with the dead physically and emotionally. Skeptical and fearful, no one will ever accept my interest in it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my former significant other, I'm sorry. I never meant to hurt you. I had no idea how much my mental health was so bad. My paranoia and pain was not yours, and I'm sorry you burdened it. What, if anything, do you wish for? to be loved. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. Uh, And if so, how did it go? Uh, Yes, not badly. They said they shared the fantasy, but we never role-played or anything. I fear now it was a lie to comfort me. How do you feel after writing these things down? Odd. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I hope you find someone to share these needs. Thank you for that. That was that was really really deep and 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 vulnerable. And I think everybody has some turn on that they that they struggle with and um you know it's what we do with it that matters and you know finding someone a consenting adult to role play with uh I think would would be a a good way you know, I'm not a therapist, but I did cook chicken on basic cable to movies from the 80s. That's got to buy something, huh? 
This is a happy moment filled out by Charlito, and she writes, There's a picture of me when I was three or four. My hair is a mess. I'm in sloppy pajamas and posing with my two big sisters next to the Christmas tree on Christmas morning. I have my hands clasped together near my chest, chest, and I have the biggest, goofiest grin I've ever seen. When I see that photo, I see pure happiness. This is how I feel when I'm stargazing and seeing shooting stars, or when my therapist replies to my text, or when I'm at a Dave Matthews band concert and they start the first song. It's funny how themes emerge when I just randomly pick different surveys to read. Today, it, it seems to be uh, Dave Matthews and, and codependency. Maybe this is the universe trying to tell me that Dave Matthews is codependent and I should rescue him. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to his concert and I'm going to, the best time to do it would be to rush on stage. Because I'll have his attention. This is a happy moment filled out by Lennox. And she writes, I love when I see my dog for the first time in the morning and even though it's only been a few hours, he starts to cry and make little happy panting noises. Oh, Gracie, scratching underneath the desk. We just we just uh, gave her a flea bath yesterday. I hope to God we got rid of all of them. Uh, he makes little happy panting noises and gets so overwhelmed with excitement, he chases his tail and then goes and brings me his favorite toy. God, do I love that. I love the way dogs celebrate. <laughs> They're so limited in their ways to celebrate things. Oh, oh, that's so good. That's so good. You know, the other thing that that came up in the uh, surveys today was suicidal ideation. I just want to say, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before or not, but when people talk about suicidal ideation, they'll often say, I don't have the nerve or I'm too chicken to kill myself or I don't have the courage to kill myself. And I just want to say, It takes courage to not kill yourself, to keep getting out of bed when you can't force a smile or feel any joy and and say, yeah, I'm going to do laundry for the 4,000th fucking time. I want to die, but I'm going to cook and clean and try to be a decent person. That, to me, is courage. So anybody out there that's struggling with that, you are brave. You are a warrior. Staying alive when we want to die. Is there a bigger war than that? Sure, the war over Dave Matthews and the credibility and quality of his music, but that is a fight too big for us to get into today. Not with the pandemic. Not with him not touring. So I think if I'm going to surprise him, I'm going to have to do it at home. I'm going to hire a private investigator and find out where he stays. This is a weird way to end the podcast. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, oh, you are not alone. You are so not alone. And sending you love and and good vibes. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.
find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car right in your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.